We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Mark 1. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little further... He saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Gracious God, thank you that you see every single person in this room and that you know us better than we know ourselves. And you see all the things about us that we try so desperately hard to keep from others. Uh, you, you see us to the very bottom, and yet your response is never to move away from us in frustration, in disappointment, in anger. But it is always to move towards us in love. And we pray that that would be what we experience right now as we open your word And as we open our ears to hear all that you have to say to us today, help us to believe that every word that comes from you is for our good, so that we might hear it and be changed by it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to welcome you. My name is Brent. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Last week, if you're new, uh, we just started a new series last week, actually, in the Gospel of Mark. And we're calling it the way of Jesus, because in in John chapter 14, Jesus makes this radical claim. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's actually what we have right up here on our stained glass, the way, right next to science and health, actually. (laughs) Some of you, every week, you're like, what is, what kind of church is this? We, listen, we are a church, I feel like I need to do this about every four months, because some of you get really distracted by this. Uh, we, are, we are pro-science. We are a church that is pro-science. We are a church that is pro-health. We probably would not put it on our stained glass if we were designing it today, but it's what was there when we moved into this place. All right, so we, listen, we can get on board, all right, clear it up. We can get on board with Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. And the reason we can get on board with it is not only because Jesus 
claimed to be the way, but actually that's what the earliest Christians were called. They were called followers of the way. They they weren't called Christians. They were called followers of the way because they were different in every way. They were different in the way that they viewed power and in the way they used their money and the way they viewed sex and in the way that they cared for the poor and in the way that they fought for justice. And they were different in the way that they loved. They were different in the way that they loved. They were different in the way that they loved others because they were different in the way that they understood God's love for them. And that's actually what this passage is about today. We're talking about the way of Jesus. What this passage tells us today is that the way of Jesus is the way of love, actually. This is so important to understand the rest of the Gospel of Mark. That the way of Jesus is the way of being loved, and it is the way of being enabled to love. Now, love is a very popular thing today. Kind of always has been, all right? Uh, It's a very popular thing. There's actually a lot of confusion about love. What what actually is love? What does that even mean when we use that word? There was an article that came out a couple years ago in the New York Times. It was uh, entitled, What's Love? Don't Ask the Answer Couple. And the article was actually, it was written by uh, a woman who wrote for Glamour magazine 30 years ago, back in the day when you actually had like printed magazines. We don't remember this, but that was actually a thing. And uh, she wrote for Glamour magazine, and she and her husband wrote this regular column that was called The Answer Couple. And people would write in and ask them questions about love and relationships. Fast forward 30 years, she, has, she and her husband are now divorced. And she's writing this article several years ago, and she's looking back on this column that she and her husband used to write, and this is what she said. She said, I wonder if I could write to an answer couple today and ask them what love is. I wonder what they would say. But I would know that they wouldn't really know because no one does. What I love about this passage is it is actually saying, no, you can actually know what love is. In fact, there may not be a better place to go in the Gospels than this very famous passage on Jesus' baptism. When Jesus comes up out of the waters, the Father speaks these incredible words of love over him. You are my son, whom I love, and in whom I'm well pleased. So I want to look at, I want to look at this passage under three headings. Number one, it tells us that there is a love that we were built for. Every single person in this room, that there is a love that we were built for. That's verses 9 through 13, actually. The second thing is it tells us how that love can actually come into your life. That's verses 14 and 15. And then we're going to look at what actually happens when that love does come into your life. And that's verses 16 through 20. So first, there's a love that we were made for. Now, in verses 9 through 11, we read about Jesus' baptism But we also read about one of the unique doctrines of Christianity. It's a doctrine that no other religion actually says about God. Because in Mark's gospel, along with Matthew and Luke's gospel, which all record Jesus' baptism, you know what they all say? They all say that there were three people present. God the Father, who is speaking. God the Son, who is being baptized and God the Holy Spirit who is descending like a dove. This is what Christians have for centuries called the doctrine of the the, the Trinity. 
And I want you to think about this. Christianity and Christianity alone says that God is a community. That he is one God in three persons. Here, let, me, let me break this down for you. There's not three gods. No, God is too one for that. He's too united for that. But God is not uh, one God merely in three different forms. God is too three for that. He's too distinct for that. It is one God in three persons. Does that make sense? Of course it doesn't make sense. That is a mystery. And you see, we might not be able to understand how that works, but we can understand why it matters. You know why it matters? It matters for the way that we understand love. Let me show you why that's the case. In 1 John chapter 4, it says that God is love. That, God is love. Think about that. That means that love is not simply something that God does. Love is something that God is. It's part of his very nature. But the only way that that can be true, the only way that God can be love and not just do love, is if God is a community. And because I cannot say it any better than C.S. Lewis, I'm just going to read you what he wrote. He says this. He says, people are fond of repeating the Christian statement that God is love, but they seem to not notice that the words God is love have no real meaning unless God contains at least two persons. Love is something that one person has for another person. If God was a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. Of course, what these people mean when they say that God is love is often something quite different. They really mean love is God. That is, that our feelings of love, however and wherever they arise and whatever results they produce, are to be treated with great respect. But that is something quite different from what Christians mean by the statement, God is love. Christians believe, listen to this, that the living, dynamic activity of love has been going on in God forever and has created everything else. And that, by the way, is perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions, that in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a kind of drama. Lewis says, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And I love that image of the Trinity as a dance. Uh, don't think of like ballroom dancing where everybody is just watching two people dance. Think of the electric slide. Think of the Cupid shuffle. Think of the wobble, okay? You ever been to a wedding? You ever been to a party where a couple of people start doing those dances? What happens? Everybody else starts joining in. And you see, this is the dance of the Trinity. It's a dance where others are constantly being invited in. The doctrine of the Trinity means, here's what it means. God does not make us. He did not create us because he was lonely and needed love. God created us because he was a community and he wanted to invite us into his love, into the dance, into the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you see, when Jesus comes up out of these waters in Mark chapter 1, and the Father speaks these words over him. You know what we're getting a glimpse of? We're getting a glimpse of what the Trinity has been doing to one another for all of eternity. Delighting in one another. Cherishing one another. Celebrating one another. Praising one another. Speaking words of love over one another. 
But you see, it's not just a glimpse of what, of the love within the Trinity. It's actually a glimpse of the love that we were made for. Listen to the words that God the Father speaks over God the Son. He says, this is my Son, whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. With whom I am well pleased. Friends, those six words are what drive every single one of us in this room. Regardless of where you are on the spectrum of belief, whether you call yourself a Christian or not this morning, every single one of us, we come into this world looking for someone or something to pronounce these words of blessing over our lives, to tell us that we are wanted and that we are worthy of love, to tell us that we are desired and that we are delighted in, that that we have infinite value and worth. Have you ever noticed how no matter how much love and affirmation you get from other people, it's actually never enough. I was watching an episode of Chef's Table this week. Uh, I love this season. It's on pizza, which is, that's an amazing show in and of itself. And the first episode uh, is about this guy named Chris Bianco. Chris Bianco is known as the best pizza maker in America. And this is what he said in this episode. He said that he can get a thousand comments of praise from people about his food but he can't hear them because of the one negative comment. And isn't that true for all of us? No matter how much love and affirmation we get from others, it is never enough. Listen, some of us, we've had a lot of it in our lives. We have been surrounded by very supportive people. Some of us, we've had none of it. But you see, no matter how much, how much, how much you have or how little you've had, it is never enough. But what if, I want you to think about this, what if the opposite were possible? What if there could be a single voice of love and praise in your life that could actually drown out the thousand voices of criticism that we hear both outside us and from inside of us? Don't you wish there was a voice like that in your life? Uh, Marianne Bird, she wrote a memoir called The Whisper Test. She tells the story of her second grade teacher, and this is what she writes. She says, I grew up knowing that I was different and I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate, and when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and garbled speech. And when schoolmates asked what happened to your lip, I'd tell them that I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced, she says, that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored. Mrs. Leonard was her name. She was short, round, and happy. A sparkling lady. And annually we had a hearing test. Do you remember these hearing tests that you would get? Some of you are too young to remember this, but you get these hearing tests at school. She says, Miss Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. I knew from past years that as we stood against the door and covered one ear, the teacher sitting at her desk would whisper something 
and we would have to repeat it back. Things like, the sky is blue, or do you have new shoes? And so I waited there for my turn, and then she spoke. Seven words that changed my life. Mrs. Leonard leaned in and whispered into my ear, I wish you were my little girl. Marianne Bird said that in the voice of that teacher, she actually heard the voice of God. It's why she became a Christian, actually. It's because she experienced a love that she had never known. And you see, if you've ever wondered, is there a single voice that could actually drown out all the other voices of criticism? It's the voice of the Father in this text. You know what it means to be a Christian? A Christian is not just somebody who says, I believe in God. Friends, that does not make you a Christian. If that's as far as you can get this morning, let me gently say to you, that does not make you a Christian. The New Testament says that even the demons believe Jesus is God. A Christian is not just someone who says, I believe in God. A Christian is someone who says, I am the apple of God's eye. I have his smile. God delights in me. His affections run wild for me. This is the love that we were built for. And until we find it, we will search and search and search. Now, if we're honest with ourselves in this room, I think most of us would say, you know what? It's really hard for me to believe that God could love me like that. And that brings us to the second point. I mean, how, how does this love come into your life? How can you experience it? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 15, with the very first words that Mark records out of Jesus' mouth in the whole gospel, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now, I, I mean, think about this, repent and good news. That sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? Who, who in here hears the word repent and thinks, yay, good news, no, to modern ears, repent sounds like bad news. It sounds like negative news, but it is such good news. And the reason it is good news is because it means that there is nothing you can do in and of yourself to earn God's love. You cannot achieve it. You can only receive it. It, it can only come into your life as a gift you see, and this is why Jesus is getting baptized. Now, this doesn't shock us, but I just, you know, it shocked everyone who was watching to see Jesus getting baptized. I mean, baptism means, and you hear this, you hear us say this every time we baptize someone here uh, in our congregation. We say baptism means that you cannot make yourself right with God. You cannot clean yourself. You cannot wash yourself. God has to clean you. God has to wash you. That's why we pour water over people's heads. See, it doesn't matter how, how moral you are. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how much you go to church or how much you pray or how much you read your Bible. You cannot make yourself right with God. And that's actually what baptism is a picture of. In fact, last week, uh, in the text we looked at last week, it says that John the Baptist came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. <coughs> that's what baptism is all about. Now think about this. If that's what baptism is about, why is Jesus getting baptized? If, if, if baptism is about being forgiven of our sins, 
Jesus was the only one without sin. If if baptism is about God making you clean, Jesus was already clean. He lived a perfect life. He didn't need to be baptized. It's very confusing. It was actually confusing for John the Baptist as well. Uh, In Matthew's gospel, it says that when Jesus went to be baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptist looks at him and he says, I should not be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. So why is Jesus getting baptized? Well, Sinclair Ferguson, who wrote a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, he says this. He says, what we have here is Jesus' public acknowledgement that he had come to stand where sinners should stand and to receive what they should deserve and in return to give them his gift of grace and fellowship with God. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Uh, Some of you might have seen the movie Invictus. Do you remember this movie? It was about Nelson Mandela. And uh, it tells the story of Nelson Mandela who who was imprisoned for 27 years in South Africa. He was put in prison by a a white government. And uh, he spent 27 years there. When he was released from prison, he was elected as president of the country. And there was such racial tension between blacks and whites, people thought the two sides were going to tear each other apart, but Mandela was determined to work for peace and reconciliation. Now, at this time, actually, in South Africa, maybe it's still true, I don't know, but rugby was a really big deal. You know who loved rugby? White people loved rugby in South Africa. It's their favorite sport. The the national team, their national team was called the Springboks, and they wore these green jerseys. And, and people loved these green jerseys. You know who did not like rugby? Black people did not like rugby. It was a white sport. They hated the Springboks. You'd never catch them wearing the color of the Springboks. And so shortly after Mandela was elected, uh, he, he actually decided to let South Africa host the 1995 Rugby World Cup. And he decided to do this much to the disagreement of the black population that had actually put him into power. They they, they were not for this. But in in the 1995 Rugby World Cup, the Springboks went all the way to the championship. 65,000 people in the stadium. And it's one of the last scenes of the movie where as the championship was about to begin, Nelson Mandela walks out onto the field. And you know what he's wearing? He's wearing the green jersey. He's wearing the color of the spring box. And the crowd cannot believe it. And the players couldn't believe it. I mean, here he is clothed in the jersey of his oppressors. In fact, I, I was, watched one uh, interview this week with one of the captains of the team, this white captain. He said this. He said, I, I never thought that he would wear a springbok jersey. Then he turned around, and I saw number six on his back, my number. I was so emotional that I couldn't sing the national anthem. And in this moment, this entire stadium of people began to to chant Nelson Mandela's name. He won the hearts of his oppressors. You know how he won them? By putting on their clothing. 
And the Christian gospel actually says that this is what God did. Jesus Christ came into this world utterly perfect, utterly righteous, utterly holy, utterly just. He was the only one who did not need to be baptized. But he put on the clothes of our sin and our shame and our guilt. And he didn't just do it here at his baptism in Mark 1. But he did it at another baptism. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, verse 50, Jesus says, I have another baptism to undergo, and I am distressed until it is completed. He's talking about the cross. What happened on the cross? Jesus stood in our place. He went under the waters of God's judgment. He was treated like we should have been treated so that now we can be treated like he deserved to be treated. So that we could actually stand in his place. So that we could put on his clothes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took the rags of our sin and our shame upon himself so that he could put a robe of righteousness on us. And you know what that means? It means that when God now looks at you, he looks at you with the same sense of delight and love and embrace as when he looks at the sun. It means that you can hear him saying the same words over your life that he says over Jesus' life. This is my son, this is my daughter, who I love and in whom I am well pleased. It means that you can now know and experience the love that you were built for, that it can come into your life. And when it does, it will change your life. This is the last point. It will change your life. How does it change your life? Two very quick points of application and then we're done. First, once you've experienced this love, it actually sends you out to invite others into it. Jesus says to the disciples in verse 17, I will send you out to fish for people. See, once you've experienced God's love, you want other people to experience it. Once you've known it, you want other people to know it. It'll be hard for you to stay quiet about it. And maybe you think, well, you know, but there's so much I don't know about the Bible and God and Christianity. And what if, what if people ask me questions that I don't know the answers to? Uh, you know, I have so many doubts myself. You know, it makes me think about the woman that meets Jesus in the well in John chapter 4. You know what she knew about Jesus at the beginning of her encounter with him? Nothing, actually. You know what she knew about Jesus at the very end of her encounter with him? Not much. And yet, the New Testament says that she went out and she became one of the greatest evangelists in the New Testament. John says that she went out saying to people, come meet a man who has told me everything I ever did. Here's what she knew about Jesus. She knew that he knew everything about her, and he still loved her. That's what she knew, and that's all you have to know. And once you know it, you'll want other people to know it. It'll be hard, friends. It'll be hard to not invite your coworkers and your neighbors and your friends to church. It'll be hard to stay silent about how God has been good to you in your life. 
and all that he has done for you. It will send you out to invite others into it. But here's the second thing. Once you've experienced this love, it will set your life on a new path. Jesus says in verse 17, follow me. That is the Christian life in two words. The world says, follow your heart. And Jesus says, follow me. The world says the way to live a full and happy life is to pursue whatever you desire. Jesus says it is to pursue him because he is the only one who can give you everything that you do desire. And I want to be very honest with you this morning. It will come at great cost to you. This passage ends with these disciples leaving their nets, leaving their family, leaving their old way of life. When you meet Jesus, when you taste of his love, life starts to look different. To say yes to Jesus is to say no to your own definition of good and evil. It is to say no to spending your time and your money however you want. To say yes to Jesus is to surrender every part of your life to Jesus. To say yes to Jesus is to say to him whatever you want, whenever you want, and wherever you want. And it will mean, it will come at great cost, it will mean a thousand tiny deaths. But it all leads up to one massive life. One massive life. This is what Jesus says. I am the life. You want a full life? Jesus says, that's what I have come to bring you. It is the life that you were built for. And the radical claim of Christianity is that only Jesus can give it to you. There's a scene in one of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia where this little girl named Jill is wandering around in the wilderness. And she's been wandering around for quite some time, and she is dying of thirst. And she comes upon this beautiful stream. But there's a problem. Because between her and this stream is this lion. It's the Christ figure. It's Aslan. And she is terrified. And this is what Lewis writes. He says, the lion says, are you thirsty? Jill replies, I am dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. But Jill is too afraid, so she asks, would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat little girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. I dare not come then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Well, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, said Jill. And the lion replied, there is no other stream. There is no other stream. There is no other source that can give you the life that you long for. 
And there is no other stream that can give you the love that you were built for. No amount of success in this world, no spouse, no person or pleasure that you can experience in this world can give it to you. Only Jesus can. And he wants to. He wants to. And you see, if you've never known this love, you can actually know it today. In fact, I would suggest to you that the reason you are in this room is not by accident and it is not by coincidence. But it is here, but you are here because God wants you to know this love. And that's the invitation of this table is to receive his love. Whether it is for the first time, friends, or for the thousandth time, it is to come to this table and to hear God saying the same words over your life this morning that he said over Jesus' life in Mark chapter 1. You are my son. You are my daughter, who I love, and with whom I am well pleased. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we need your help this morning as we come to this table. Some of us come so suspicious that you could love us like this. Our lives are riddled with shame and guilt. Things that we have done and things that have been done to us. And what we need this morning is your voice. We need your voice to be louder than every other voice, including our own, so that we might hear all that you would have to say to us in this table today because of what your son has done for us in his life and death and resurrection. Help us to hear this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.